the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to be back in studio. James Blend producing, Dave King engineering in Portland, Pedro Bartez, he does it all in Seattle, producing and engineering. Glad to have you with us. Later today, we'll share a conversation I had with Dr. Paul Metzger, author of More Than Things, A Personalist Ethics for a Throwaway Culture. The book is published by InterVarsity Press. He's a professor at Multnomah Seminary, and that's all coming up later this hour. But first, a look at some of the day's headlines. The Federalist contributor. Contributor Yvetta Duffy writes that President Biden is preparing to deliver the State of the Union address before a joint session of Congress after again missing his deadline to present spending and national security plans to Congress, which he is required to do. Well, some Republicans in Congress want to hold the president and future presidents accountable to the deadline with a simple penalty. No plans on time, no grand speech under a proposal titled the Summit It Act, the Submit It Act. Uh, short for send us budget materials and international tactics in time. Now, it's a little bit rich when you've got Congress. They haven't really passed what they are required to do. They've pushed their responsibilities uh, back time and time again as well. But the Budget and Accounting Act of 1921, updated several times, requires a president to submit his budget request to Congress no later than the first Monday in February. The National Security Act of 1947 requires the president to submit a national security proposal for the same day. But there is no enforcement mechanism for either, which is where the summit, uh, rather submit it act, comes in. President Biden's budget was due on February 5th, yet Congress has seen nothing. Representative Buddy Carter, who sponsored the bill, said this is irresponsible until Congress receives the president's national security strategy and budget. He has no business delivering a State of the Union address. Well, the Submit It Act would prohibit House and Senate leadership from inviting the president to address a joint session of Congress until Congress gets both plans. If passed, that bill would affect the State of the Union going back to rather going into 2025 and onward. Uh, This won't have any impact on Biden's State of the Union address this year. That's scheduled for March the 7th. So it is coming. Well, the president's tardiness is not unique, as his four immediate predecessors from both parties were also late in getting their plans to Congress. Late seems to be a theme in Washington, including his likely 2024 Republican opponent, Donald Trump. So rather than a partisan problem, it's largely a long running issue between two branches of government. Senator Joni Ernst introduced a Senate version of that same legislation, saying if the president is going to be allowed the opportunity to address Congress and the entire nation, he should actually have a plan in place, she said in a public statement when announcing the Senate version. At a time when Americans are facing skyrocketing inflation and the world is on fire, we deserve more than just empty rhetoric. Well, his budget proposal in the past three years missed the deadline by 115 49 and 31 days, respectively. Kurt Cochran, a senior fellow in fiscal policy at the Americans for Prosperity, noted over the past several decades, president's budget and defense proposals have been delayed more and more as missed deadlines have become an ever more common symptom of a broke down 
um, system of a breakdown of the budget process, Cochran said in a public statement supporting the legislation. Congress and the American people deserve the opportunity to see and evaluate the president's requests in a timely manner. Well, President Trump who was 38 days late in his first year, and his three immediate predecessors missed the budget deadline as well, according to Roll Call. President Obama was late by 98 days in submitting his first budget proposal in 2009, according to the Congressional Research Service report. And President George W. Bush was 63 days in his fiscal year 2003, I should say late in his 2003 plan. In 1993, President Bill Clinton was 66 days late. There seems to be a pattern. Well, the Congressional Research Service report noted that deadlines Um, The deadline was changed several times, previously required in January. The most recent adjustment was in 1990, when the deadline was changed to say on or after the first Monday in January, but not later than the first Monday in February of each year. End quote. Well, the Constitution requires the president to submit a State of the Union update to Congress, but nothing requires that message to be a speech to a joint session. Every president from Thomas Jefferson through William Howard Taft, they submitted a written annual message to Congress. In 1913, President Woodrow Wilson broke that tradition with a speech to a joint session of Congress. And ever since, there's been a lot of grandstanding and politicking. I'm not sure which version might be better for the American people. The speech uh, to a joint session requires an invitation from congressional leadership, which has typically been a formality. But in 2019, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi threatened to withhold an invitation to then-President Donald Trump to speak until the partial government shutdown ended. And by the way, we're on the verge of a partial government shutdown because, um, well, Congress hasn't yet done its job timely. Well, Trump suggested he would deliver the address at an alternative location. The shutdown ended and Pelosi invited him to speak. Again, this uh, legislation, the Submit It Act, would not impact this uh, March uh, speech, the State of the Union address that President Biden intends to give. It could be his last or the first of the next um, next, uh, presidential uh, run, but we'll just have to hear what the president has to say. Meanwhile, President Biden is planning to make a rare visit to the southern border on Thursday, according to two people briefed on the plans traveling to uh, Brownsville, Texas, on the same day that former President Donald Trump is already scheduled a border trip. Probably not the same location, however. The plans underscore the urgency now propelling the uh, Biden team on immigration, which has become one of the most serious political liabilities. So is it a political trip? You can answer that yourselves. Under the Biden administration, record numbers of migrants have crossed the southern border, a fact that Mr. Trump and Republicans have wielded aggressively against the president. A majority of Americans disapprove of the president's job performance and polls show that the president's detractors cite immigration more than any other policy issue when assessing him, even more so than the economy. Well, Mr. Trump will visit Eagle Pass in Texas on Thursday. CNN was the first to report his planned trip last week. On the uh, trip, Mr. Trump plans to deliver remarks from the border to highlight the immigration crisis and lay blame at the feet of, well, you know who, according to uh, a person close to Mr. Trump who was not authorized to discuss the plans publicly, which shouldn't have been discussed publicly. But there you have it. Well, Mr. Trump is expected to highlight crimes committed by migrants in New York and in other cities, as well as the arrest of a Venezuelan undocumented immigrant and the recent high profile killing of a 22 year old nursing student in Georgia. Uh, the person added, well, the post uh, Biden will make rare visit to the southern border on same day as Trump appeared first in the New York Times. Well, that ought to be an interesting day. 
Well, four medical associations allege that the FDA's original 2000 approval of Mifeprix uh, and its decision to eliminate the safety rules for using it violated the APA. Uh, It's unreasonable for an agency to eliminate a reporting requirement for a thing and then use the resulting absence of data to support its decision. Well, this case is about whether agencies that make decisions with a potentially enormous impact on Americans' lives follow the law. Well, the Supreme Court will hear arguments on the 26th of March in a conflict that began way back in 2002 over how the Food and Drug Administration has regulated the abortion drug Mifepristone. The Fifth Circuit held on August the 16th of last year that the FDA violated the Administrative Procedures Act, or APA, by dropping longstanding safety rules for obtaining and using the drug. Federal drug regulation uh, requires or prohibits, federal law prohibits, introducing into interstate commerce a prescription drug that has not been approved by the FDA as safe and effective for its proposed indication and under the proposed condition of use, end quote. The burden is on the applicant to provide substantial evidence that meets this standard. Now, I need to take a break, but we'll continue to look at what the Supreme Court will be deciding and what the rules uh, are. That's coming up in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. I'm Georgine Rice. Coming up later this hour, a conversation I had with Dr. Paul Metzger. He's a professor at Multnomah University, Multnomah Seminary. He's the author of More Than Things, The Personalist Ethics for a Throwaway Culture. That's coming up in the... Uh, latter part of this hour. Just before the break, I was talking about the Supreme Court that's going to settle a 22-year conflict over abortion drugs. Well, the FDA FDA website explains that for a medication with a serious safety concern, its approval may be conditioned on implementation of extra safety restrictions. Since enactment of the FDA Amendments Act of 2007, those additional restrictions have been referred to as a risk evaluation and mitigation strategy and go beyond routine risk minimization measures, end quote. Well, the extra safety measures may result in approval of drugs that might have been kept off the market under ordinary safety standards. Well, the uh, standards were set by the APA for how executive branch agencies make decisions. It requires courts to hold unlawful and set aside agency action findings and conclusions found to be arbitrary, capricious and abuse of discretion or otherwise not in accordance with law. Well, the Supreme Court has explained that an agency action is arbitrary and capricious if, for example, its decision ran counter to the evidence, the agency failed to consider an important aspect of the problem, or it provided an unsatisfactory explanation of the connection between the facts and its decision. Well, pharmaceutical manufacturers for RU486 in 1980 synthesized mifepristone, which suppresses progesterone, a hormone necessary to fertilize an egg to attach the uterine wall. The FDA expressed concern about the drug safety for the, uh, from the start, initially prohibiting its importation for personal use because of the significant risks of using the drug without close physician supervision. Well, uh, it, for example, was approved for use only in the first seven <clears throat> weeks of pregnancy and only after obtaining a prescription from a physician with specific training to handle certain complications. The drug could be dispensed only in person by a certified provider. Well, that all changed. And while I won't go into much more of the detail because there's lots of other stuff to talk about, the Supreme Court is going to determine if, in fact, the FDA made a decision for reasons other than efficacy and for the safety of the patient. 
in making uh, this drug, mifepristone, available through the mail. Well, in other news, Sweden cleared the final obstacle to NATO admission on Monday as Hungary voted to ratify the Nordic country after nearly two years of negotiations. Sweden will be the 32nd country to join NATO, discarding its historic position of military neutrality. Sweden initiated its application to join NATO back in May of 22 after Russia invaded Ukraine. Well, for a number for a member rather to be admitted into NATO, all existing members must unanimously approve their application. And at the end of June of 22, after Sweden, as well as Finland's invitations to NATO were confirmed, the treaty was sent to the 30 member states, parliaments and legislatures for final ratification. The Senate in August of 22 overwhelmingly voted in favor of a resolution to ratify Sweden's admission, a bipartisan move designed to bolster the strategic alliance against Russia as it waged war in in Ukraine. Well, Sweden's integration expands NATO's reach in the northern uh, part of Europe, which members see as a deterrent to Russia's aggression. By Article 5 of the NATO agreement, signatories are obligated to treat an attack on one member nation as an attack on all and mobilize appropriately for their mutual protection, an appealing provision for prospective applicants. Well, before Sweden's success earlier today, The effort in Hungary to usher the uh, Scandinavian country into NATO faced opposition from governing party members led by the prime minister in 2023. His objections and finally uh, he uh, dropped his objections rather and finally endorsed Sweden's membership to NATO. However, the Hungarian parliament delayed votes on the ratification of the two countries' accessions over a different uh, Disagreement with the European Union over corruption accusations. Well, those were negotiated and Sweden has now been approved to become the 32nd member of NATO. In other news, President Biden is asserting that the Supreme Court couldn't stop him from canceling student debt. It set off social media users for his assault on democracy, in quotes. On Wednesday, the president spoke to uh, spoke at Jillian Dixon Library in Culver City, California, where he referenced his efforts to cancel more student loan debt. Cancel really isn't the right word. He shifted the debt to others who didn't benefit by the, uh, the debt. He noted that while his student debt handout program was initially halted by the Supreme Court, its ruling didn't stop him. Early in my term, I announced a major plan to provide millions of working families with debt relief for their college student debt, Biden said. Tens of millions of people in debt were literally about to be canceled in debts. But my mega Republican friends in the Congress, elected officials and special interests, along with the Supreme Court uh, opposing it, stepped in and sued us and the Supreme Court blocked it. But that didn't stop me. I guess that's a boast. I'm not sure it's a an appropriate one, Uh, his um, dismissal of the Supreme Court's decision that ruled his plan unconstitutional angered and concerned many people on X. Yesterday, he was uh, going on about uh, how Republicans were going to destroy democracy. The Federalist senior writer David Harsinyi remarked on the irony of uh, this move. Meanwhile, MSNBC made a leap on Thursday to declare that The ex-Intel officials who peddled the Russia disinformation narrative about Hunter Biden's laptop were actually right following the Department of Justice's recent indictment of Alexander Smirnov. Smirnov is an ex-informant of the FBI. He was charged last week by special counsel David Weiss of making false statements alleging both President Biden and his son pocketed millions in bribes for the ousting of a Ukrainian prosecutor who was investigating the Ukrainian energy company, the firm Burisma Holdings, on which Hunter sat as a board member. 
It has since been revealed by the Department of Justice that Smirnov had ties to Russian intelligence officials who allegedly fed the Burisma narrative to him. In light of the recent developments, MSNBC revisited the infamous open letter signed by 51 ex-Intel officials in October of 2020, responding to the bombshell reporting from the New York Post about Hunter Biden's laptop, insisting the published emails had all the classic airmarks of a Russian information operation. The revelation of a Russian-linked informant here, it comes nearly four years after many in the American intelligence community warned Moscow was behind many of the allegations being levied at the Biden family. Willie Geist of Morning Joe began in a 2020 letter. 51 former U.S. intel officials expressed their concern about the source of a much discussed story on the right. Hunter Biden's laptop. NBC News correspondent Ken Delanian. He told Geist that uh, those former intel officials paid a steep price for signing that letter and they were right. Well, ballot harvesting, poll watchers and more. Laura Trump revealed her plan to um, turbocharge the RNC. Well, Laura uh, Trump is working double time, cementing her front runner status to be the next co-chair of the Republican National Committee, including laying out her priorities to turbocharge the organization, struggling to keep up with its Democratic Democrat counterparts, massive fundraising numbers. Trump described those priorities during a campaign stop in North Charleston, South Carolina on Wednesday while firing up voters for his father-in-law, former President Donald Trump. Ahead of Saturday's Republican primary election, we have to legally um, we have to legally ballot harvest everywhere we possibly can. She told the riled up crowd of roughly 150 supporters gathered in the Trump campaign headquarters, stressing the need to follow the law. Unlike Democrats, she said. Uh, who's accused of she accused of trying to steal elections through various means. Trump added that in addition to ballot harvesting on uh, day one as RNC co-chair, she would launch initiatives to register more Republican voters as well as recruit and train poll watchers to help crack down on any potential illegal activity. I'm here to do whatever I can to make sure we get this country back on track. She went on to say she has yet to be officially elected for that position. Well, parents defending education, President Nicole Niley, uh, she called for conservative lawyers to fight locally and intereducation law to stop school districts from enforcing rules on misgendering, pronoun usage and other gender politics in the classroom. PDE announced Wednesday that it settled a lawsuit with an Iowa school district over a policy that penalized students who misgender others. Parents uh, defending education is thrilled that Lindmar Community Schools has agreed to respect the First Amendment rights of its students going forward. PDE President Nicole Niley said in a press statement, Lindmar Community Schools Insurance Company will pay the plaintiffs $20,000 per the Associated Press. This settlement sends a clear message that student speech may not be compelled by administrators when it comes to gender issues and a reminder to districts that viewpoint discrimination in public schools is wrong. Full stop. She continued. The lawsuit was taken up by the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Eighth Circuit. Lynn Marr agreed to rescind and promised never to reinstate the portion of the policy 50413R that prohibits an intentional and or persistent refusal by staff or students to respect a student's gender identity. And a transgender activist group that surreptitiously planned a funeral at St. Patrick's Cathedral for a transgender atheist held a press conference on Wednesday calling for an apology from the cathedral for ending the ceremony early. Some Catholic groups, however, are demanding an investigation and calling the event a hate crime. The February 15th funeral in honor of a transgender atheist known as Cecilia Gentili 
an Argentinian-born activist who advocated for the trans community as well as sex workers and HIV-AIDS patients, included what some Catholics viewed as a mockery of their religion during the ceremony at the iconic New York City Cathedral. Gentili uh, died on February 6th at the age of 52. More than a 1,000 people attended the funeral, and it sparked community outrage due to the service's focus on praying for transgender rights and gender-affirming health care. As part of the celebration, the attendees called Gentili a saint, stating in Spanish, this whore, um, this great whore, St. Cecilia, mother of all whores. At one point during the ceremony, the lyrics of Ave Maria were changed to Ave Cecilia. And you get the idea. Well, now the family of the deceased is hitting back, claiming the cathedral did know the funeral was for a trans activist and former sex worker, stating the only deception president present rather at St. Patrick's Cathedral is that it um, claims to be a welcoming place for all, adding that the funeral service had brought precious life and radical joy to the cathedral in historic defiance of the church's hypocrisy and anti-trans hatred. The Daily Mail reported. We're going to take a break. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. I'm Georgine Rice. Coming up later in the next segment, we'll talk with, uh, I had a conversation with Dr. Paul Metzger, More Than Things, a personalist ethic for a throwaway culture. That's coming up in the next few segments here on the Georgine Rice Show. Business owners, lawmakers, are calling for a repeal of a progressive law that decriminalizes drugs amid the overdose crisis, amid a massive uptick in overdose deaths, open-air fentanyl use, and rampant homelessness. Here in Oregon, voters and lawmakers on both sides of the aisle are turning on a law that decriminalizes drug possession. What we've done is caused the death of literally thousands of people in the name of harm reduction. So I think as voters, as Americans, as compassionate people, we need to take a hard look at what we've done and look at how we're going to fix it. That's a quote from the National Police Association spokesperson and retired Sergeant Betsy Brantner-Smith speaking to the national media. Well, over the last several months, business owners, residents and law enforcement in the state have detailed stories of families grieving over the loss of their teenage sons and daughters, drug-addled people laying unconscious in the streets and addicts turning to retail theft for a quick fix. According to a study by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, Oregon had the largest year-to-year increase in fentanyl deaths in 2023, up 41% between September of 22 and September of 23. Federal data also shows that Oregon has experienced a staggering 1,500% increase in overdose deaths since the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, the most severe escalation in the United States. In late January, Oregon leaders, including the governor, Portland Mayor Ted Wheeler and Multnomah County Chair Jessica Vega Peterson, they joined together to declare a 90-day state of emergency in Portland's central city to address rampant fentanyl use and related deaths. Later in the Portland-only segment of the program, we'll tell you what the legislature is considering in that regard. Republican National Committee Chairwoman Ronna McDaniel will formally resign her position after the March 5th Super Tuesday primaries, weeks after President, uh, fr- former President Trump asked her to step down. The announcement comes weeks after Trump revealed his recommendations for changes within the RNC earlier this month. He proposed that North Carolina GOP Chair Michael Watley take o- over as chairman, while his daughter-in-law, Laura Trump, as we mentioned earlier, and campaign senior advisor Chris uh, La Savita also received leadership positions. It has been the honor and privilege of my life to serve the Republican National Committee for seven years as chairwoman to elect Republicans and grow our party, McDaniel said in a statement. I have decided to step aside at our spring training on the 8th of March in Houston to allow our nominee to select a chair 
of his choosing or their choosing. That nominee has not yet been selected. AFP Action, the conservative wing of the powerful and influential conservative Americans for Prosperity, funded by billionaire Koch brothers, has pulled funding for the presidential campaign of Nikki Haley in an email to staffers. Um, AFP Action Senior Advisor Emily Seidel said the group did not believe that any outside group can make a material difference to widen Haley's path to victory. And so while we will continue to endorse her, we will focus our resources where we can make the difference. And that's the U.S. Senate and House, she wrote. Well, AFP Action, they endorsed Haley in November, giving her a major grassroots and organizational boost. The deep-pocketed, fiscally conservative network launched an ad blitz on behalf of Haley in January, including mailers, digital ads, and connected TV spots. AFP Action, which pledged to spend tens of millions of dollars to help push the Republican Party past former uh, President Trump as it endorsed Haley in late November, said last month it was putting an initial 20 Seven million dollars behind this new wave in their ongoing campaign. The news came after Haley's GOP rival, former President Trump, won the GOP primary in Haley's home state of South Carolina on Saturday. Well, President Biden is preparing to deliver a State of the Union address before a joint session of Congress after again missing his deadline to present spending and national security plans to Congress. That will move forward despite the fact that there is an effort to prevent that from happening in the future. And Palestinian Prime Minister Mohammed Sataya, he announced on Monday that he submitted his government's resignation to the president, uh, Mahmoud Abbas. I submitted the government's resignation to uh, the president on February 20th, and today I submitted in writing, he said at a news conference via the Palestinian News and Information Agency. Abbas must still decide whether to accept Uh, the resignation and his government's uh, resignation. But the move signals a willingness by the Western-backed Palestinian leadership to accept a shakeup that could lead to reforms viewed as necessary to revitalize the Palestinian Authority. The U.S. is seeking a reformed Palestinian Authority to govern Gaza once the war between Israel forces and the Hamas terrorists is over. Anti-Christian hatred is accelerating in the United States, according to a Christian nonprofit that's tracked violence against U.S. churches since 2018. The uh, Washington, D.C.-based Family Research Council released its annual Hostility Against Churches report last week, finding that there were 436 hostile incidents against churches in 2023. That's more than double the number tracked in the previous year and more than eight times as many as the group found in 2018. The Family Research Council said it used publicly available data to track 915 acts of hostility against churches over the past six years. Most of the incidents were acts of vandalism. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan on Sunday said the Ukraine aid package that hangs in the balance after clearing the Senate with bipartisan support is critical for U.S. munitions production amid concern of a shortage. Uh, Shannon Bream asked Sullivan in an interview to respond to concerns voiced by Senator J.D. Vance of Ohio at the uh, Munich Security Conference last week. Vance, who reportedly skipped out on a meeting with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky at the conference, advocated for a negotiated peace with Russia, raising concern that the United States does not make enough munitions to support a war in Eastern Europe, a war in the Middle East amid the Israel-Hamas conflict, and potentially a contingency in East Asia if China were to invade Taiwan, what is the president's plan for rebuilding this gap now in weaponry so we uh, can help our allies, so we can protect ourselves? Bream asked. 
citing a recent report published by the Defense News claiming the U.S. will run out of critical munitions only eight days into a high-intensity conflict with China over Taiwan. We have discovered over the past two years since the start of the war in Ukraine, since Biden came into office, that the cupboards were not as full as they should have been based on uh, underinvestment over the course of the past 20 years. And we have been uh, working since day one of this administration to build up the defense industrial base to increase the production of critical munition systems, Sullivan said. And three years into the Biden administration, we are producing significantly more than the day we walked into office. Second, this bill that he's referring to, this bipartisan bill that the Senate just passed, is the best answer to our question. Uh, it contains substantial resources to enhance the production capability of our defense defense industries base so that we can build munitions, not just for Ukraine, but also to make sure the United States military has the tools it needs to deter any adversary anywhere in the world at any time, Sullivan continued. If we don't pass this bill, it's going to mean less money going to 40 of the 50 states of the United States that are currently in the process of producing critical munitions. We have got to get that money out the door. Close quote. Well, the U.S. is considering ramping up production of 150 millimeter munitions to 100,000 a month by the end of 2025. Vance noted in his speech, while the Russians make close to 500,000 a month right now at this very minute. So the problem here vis-a-vis Ukraine is America doesn't make enough weapons. Europe doesn't make enough weapons. And that really is uh, far more important than American political will or how much money we print and then send to Europe, Vance went on to say. Well, as I've mentioned, the Supreme Court is set to hear arguments in the most significant free speech case since the 1960s on Monday, the 26th. Well, that's, of course, today. The dispute comes down to one question. Do big tech companies have a constitutional right to censor other people? The court will hear two connected free speech cases. The broader of the two, Net Choice versus Paxton, stems from a challenge of the Texas law, which protects its residents from big tech censorship. The other important case, Moody versus Net Choice, was also brought by big tech to challenge a Florida law that prohibits big tech censorship of political figures. The Media Research Center has now documented documented more than 6,400 cases of censorship by firms such as Amazon, Google, YouTube, and Meta, including the egregious suppression of the New York Post-Biden laptop story ahead of the 2020 election. To protect Texans from big tech's abuses of power, Texas enacted a new common carrier law. Common carriership is a long-standing legal concept for private companies which hold themselves out as open to the public and also controls access to other markets. Common carrier laws have existed for centuries covering utilities, telecommunications firms, and railroads. A common carrier is forbidden from denying service to or discriminating against its customers. And while it was already broadly understood this category included large social media platforms, Texas eliminated any doubt by explicitly classifying them as such. Well, under its trade association net choice, Big Tech has advanced a profoundly silly argument for why courts should block the Texas law. Big Tech claims that by barring social media platforms from subjectively banning users, Texas is compelling the platform to speak against their will. Well, we'll see what the Supreme Court comes up with by way of a decision in the months ahead. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, Paul Metzger. Dr. Metzger is the author of More Than Things. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, as promised, I have a ex- distinguished guest in studio with me, so I'm excited to introduce him and his new book to you. Uh, he makes the point in the book that we live in a culture of commodification. People are too often defined by what they do or what they own. Uh, they're treated as a means to an end, as cogs in a machine. And what goes missing is a deep sense of personhood. And he helps us to rethink uh, the subject of the value of the person in his uh, in his book, more than things, the personist personalist ethics for a throwaway culture. Well, Dr. Paul Metzger is uh, King's College London Ph.D. He is a professor of Christian theology and theology of culture at Multnomah University and seminary and director of the Institute for Cultural Engagement, New Wine, New Wineskins here in the Portland area. He is the author of numerous books, including Consuming Jesus, Beyond Race and Class Divisions in a Consumer Church and Connecting Christ, How to Discuss Jesus in a World of Diverse Paths. And he's the co-editor of A World for All, Global Civil Society in political theory and Trinitarian theology. That was a mouthful. I'm just <laughs> delighted to have you here to talk about your latest book. Welcome back. It's been a while. Georgine, thanks so much. It's always a pleasure and a privilege to dialogue with you. So thanks so much for the opportunity. Well, in More Than Things, you present a personalist moral vision and moral compass for leading us from a culture of things in which we are commodities to a culture of persons. And in the book, you emphasize the inherent value of persons. Let's begin by defining personalism and personalist ethics so we can start with some understanding. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you, Georgine. So when when one is thinking about uh, personalism, uh, one has in mind such things as that we are embodied as human beings. We're not brains on a stick. We're embodied creatures. Uh, we have individuality as uh, as persons, but we're also individuals in relationship. So these are just some of the components. We're not, you know, no man, no person, no woman is an island unto themselves. We are who we are in relation, yet we also have individual agency. We're embodied, but there's also consciousness and self-consciousness. I think of the, you know, my dog. I have a Shiba Inu and my dog, you know, does Kenta have consciousness? Does he have self-consciousness? You know, does a bat have self-consciousness? Well, humans have self-consciousness. Uh, so we we can be self-reflective, being self-aware, but also aware of others. So these are some of the components with personalism. And then when we bring in our Christian faith, uh, the Christian faith teaches that God is three eternal persons in communion, three divine persons, Father, Son, and Spirit in eternal communion. So the very being of God at the core of God's being is not simply a divine essence, but also three divine persons. So the core of our identity is bound up with being created in the image of the triune God. And what difference does that make? That we at the core of God's being is a father, heavenly father, Abba father, and his son, Jesus, in the spirit who's also personal. And that invites us not to treat one another as things, but as persons where we have invaluable um, worth. And so with personhood comes dignity with personalism. And so the idea that everyone has inherent dignity. My son, who experienced a traumatic brain injury a few years ago, I start out the book talking about how Mm -hmm. I look to see how his caregivers treat him. He's minimally conscious, and whether he was conscious or not, to see that they treat him with inherent dignity, that each human has a worth that is unfathomable as mysteries, because again, we cannot be minimized, we cannot be objectified 
as creating the image of God. So that's at the core of personalism, and that leads to a personalist ethics that I should never treat someone as a mere means to my own ends, that I would use them. You know, we're always benefiting from one another. When I go to the store, I benefit from the cashier selling me a product, but they are more than being mm-hmm. a cash reader. They're, they're a person. So I dare not use them, even if they're helping me and they are meaningful to me in terms of what they're doing, they have far more worth that cannot be put uh, looked upon with the price tag or what have you. That, as Michael Sandel said in his book, um, What Money Can't Buy, The Moral Limits of Markets, that uh, a market economy is one thing, or a market economy is one thing. He thinks it's a good thing. But a market society where the only thing that has value is what a price tagging people. He says that is the line we must not cross yeah. over. Yeah. It's interesting because I, I found this book compelling because I am the, the caregiver for my mother. Mm. She's 92 years old. And she and I have this sort of conversation on a regular basis, reminding of her of her inherent value, despite the fact that she is physically unable to do much of what she did as a younger woman, that her cognition isn't the same as it was when she was a younger woman and rehearsing her value um, as she is at this very moment and how she might be in the future is a subject that we've talked a lot about. And this runs, it seems to me, countercultural. Absolutely. Uh, this isn't what our culture says to us. We are, in fact, valued according to, as we mentioned in the introduction, what we can do, what we can offer, how we look, what we have to bring to the table. Yeah. And with that, uh, when I'm talking to my students in class, even this morning, you know, how we introduce ourselves to one another Um you know, some of my indigenous cultural friends, they introduce themselves based on their relationship to their tribe. I so often introduce myself by what I do, and there's nothing wrong with that. But what happens if I lose my job? What mm-hmm. happens if I have, you know, some kind of tragic incident? My worth doesn't go out the window with that. And I think so often in our culture, if we're not doing something or if we're not benefiting the GNP, GNP is a good thing. But if we're not benefiting in some way, then we've lost our value. And I think elderly people, people with disabilities or alternative abilities, however we want to articulate that, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There is that sense of vulnerability that's increasing. So whether it's my son, your mother, uh, it's, it's a huge issue. And we all face this in different ways at different times of the day. You know, where does our meaning and our value mm-hmm. come from? And that's where personalist ethics comes into play It's about the significance of the person at the core of reality. God is personal. We are personal, creating the image of God, and we must treat one another in a personalized manner, not an impersonal manner. We none of us want to be treated as things, but it's very difficult for us to treat one another as persons. Yeah, yeah. In your first chapter, you write about the pervasive loss of personhood and what you call missing persons. Can you explain what that what that means, this, this notion of missing persons, and what's at stake if we fail to recognize the inherent value of each other? Hmm. Uh, so I, I make use of pop culture in the first chapter. So there are certain uh, TV series and movies out there like the, the TV series Ozark um, in Netflix mm-hmm. where – you know, it might seem like obvious, but it's it's just striking that Hollywood and, and company gets this at times, whether they live into it. But, you know, a drug lord says to Wendy, uh, one of the main figures, you know, and she says, we're business partners. He says, Wendy, we're not business partners. I own you, Wendy. And it's like, I think everyone gets it. Like, whoa, that's intense. And that's that's not a good thing. Or the movie Her, where he falls in love with his voice activated operating system, uh, Joaquin Phoenix. 
and just how he's processing life. And he's kind of, he's becoming reduced to the company that's uploading his demographics and his values and his appetites as he's falling in love with this voice on this operating system. Then finally it disappears. But, but you think what's lost there? Um, Is there someone that was lost in that process? It's one thing for a thing to be treated as a person. It's another thing for a person to be treated as a thing. And then Air Jordans, uh, where kids would in the past kill one another for Mm -hmm. a pair of Air Jordans. And Macklemore in his song Wings says, you know, we are what we wear, we wear what we are. And so when we reduce people to things, I think we cheapen our identity. That to me is the real issue. It's, It's a cheapening of God's creation. It's a cheapening of ourselves where, as Pope Francis said, it's a throwaway culture. And he was talking about in relationship to abortion. He said, it's a throwaway culture today. And I think that can be extended in so many other areas. The elderly, you know, what worth do they have? Well, their worth is not bound up with, as I said before, what they contribute to the GNP. It's inherent. And a little baby and an elderly person has so much worth and value beyond what can be commodified or what have you. So, I mean, I think it's just no one wants to be cheapened. And that's the idea. And so often... Again, Hollywood gets at it. And how often do we get at it? So often I hear people talking about, you know, in church, people are giving units. Well, we might be able to look at people as giving units in one sense, but no, they're the bride of Christ. They're the body of Christ, the temple of the Holy Spirit. We we must not let that enter into the life of the church. Yeah, it's not way. just a matter of semantics. I mean, it can yeah. change your, your oh, orientation. Absolutely. You're thinking about the people you're ministering to and the people you're ministering alongside. Yeah, just just one last example. Driving down the road one day, I was going somewhere for an interview for the book, and someone cut me off, and I said to myself, Paul, look at them as a person. Don't you know They're behind <laughs> metal and glass, but don't cheapen them. Don't cheapen them. It kind of helped me. I, I pulled back, and I was ready for the equivalent of road rage, but I thought, no, no, they're persons. Don't reduce them. Don't re-. We're talking with uh, Dr. Paul Lewis Metzger, his latest book, More Than Things, A Personalist Ethics for a Throwaway Culture. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back to continue our conversation. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Dr. Paul Lewis Metzger. He is the author of several books, but today we're talking about his latest, More Than Things, A Personalist Ethics for a Throwaway Culture. The book is published by InterVarsity Press. Currently available? Yes, currently available at all major book chains and local distributors as well, I would assume. <laughs> the, I think the, ones. the subject is certainly relevant to all of us, especially at this time in, in our culture. But to whom did you write the book? Hmm. Well, I, it took about 13 years uh, to write it uh, off and on. And, uh, you know, the last couple of years, it took on even more mm-hmm. weightiness and significance. But I, I really wrote it for the church um, actually, the society at large. I mean, it's an academic book, but it has import for people of all walks of life. So, uh, again, it's a it's it's framed by way of personalist ethics and philosophy, theology, but the themes are what we deal with on the evening news and in daily life at every at every turn. So, yeah, academics, so like students, college, my students at Multnomah University and seminary, um, PhDs, but. The common person, uh, and I'm pretty common myself. So, well, I like to be challenged, and I, I think for most of us, it's good to pick something up that's going to challenge us, especially if it's relevant to the challenges we face in general. 
uh, today. So I would recommend it certainly on that point. I, I should point out that in the book, you pursue and apply a personalist framework to 10 challenging ethical issues that we're currently facing among them. And it, it's a wide ranging list of things, some unexpected. The beginning of life, for example, abortion, genetic engineering, not surprising there, euthanasia, racism, immigration reform, drone warfare, environmental care, and space exploration make that list as well. Again, very broad ranging, but really relevant, more so than you might have thought when you started the book 13 years ago. Right, right. Uh, some of these subjects would ma- maybe wouldn't have made the cut as mm-hmm. they did today. Yes, and space exploration, I think that throws people, and you know, I was probably picking up on Star Trek, you know, the last uh, frontier or what have you with space, and I call it the last ethical frontier. But we can learn a lot about our views of ourselves and our world based on thinking about space exploration. So if I can only take 100 people on a spacecraft, I have a, a, a reader's guide that I make available. It's free online through the publisher, InterVarsity Academic. It's on the website page for more than things. And so it's a 75, 76-page free download guide. But I ask in the case study for that chapter, I, and I ask my students, so if you can only bring 100 people with you, there's one spaceship that you could take into space who would be the people that would go on there? Would it be only the the wealthy, the brilliant, you know, the scientists, the, you know, the Elon Musks or the Stephen Hawkins or or what have you? Or would you would you bring people on there who have disabilities? Um, and you know, would you bring the poor on? Because you know, so often the poorer we're told, we read studies about how they know what it's like to be at a loss. They give less, you know, numbers wise, but percentage wise, they might give more. They kind of have a better empathic understanding of compassion. It's not like Gordon Gecko, greed is good. And while there are many rich people who are very giving and great philanthropists, I think there's something about the poor, you know, mm-hmm. that, you know, that we could learn something from them in outer space or people with disabilities where it's like they've had to learn how to adapt without much in terms of skill sets by way of like a handicap. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. per se. And they can teach us on how to adapt and have successful adaptation in outer space. So the ethics that come through in all the previous nine chapters make a turnaround in the last chapter in so many ways with space exploration, the last ethical frontier. So beginning of life to the end of life, from the state to across the globe in outer space, I was trying to really, in a sense with these 10 case studies, um, provide a macro perspective on a variety of pressing ethical issues from a personalist vantage point. And I think it really reveals how we actually think. You pose a question like that, and we immediately begin to think about the people we would include and why. What utility do they bring to exactly. this sort of a setting? And you challenge us to think, well, maybe I've underestimated the value of someone who doesn't bring a certain set of skills, but brings an entirely different set that would be uh, valuable in this situation. And then it reminds me that perhaps that's true in my workplace, or maybe mm-hmm. that might be true when I'm thinking about taking a trip and collecting people to bring with me. So it challenges us, even those of us who think we are, we're pretty good in this area, uh, to think more deeply about what we're overlooking, who we're overlooking. Absolutely. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 talks about those we tend to treat or view as having less significance, they're indispensable in terms of the the body of Christ. Whoever that might be, it could be those with, quote unquote, disabilities, what maybe should be called alternative abilities and how they adapt. You know, we we tend to miss those that are right before us. They have so much to teach us. Mm-hmm. And Jesus said, let the little children come unto me. Jesus understood that they had incredible significance and worth. They weren't half humans as they were seen in his day. 
he treated them as fully human and the ones that teach us most about the kingdom of God. Mm. You write that we need to work hard to account for one another's personhood. Now, how might we do that, particularly in a world, as we've been discussing, that's dominated by the perception of people as things or the commodification of people? And what role does community, as you put it, the relational structure play in that effort? So um, in the midst of everything we're going through with our family, with my son's traumatic brain injury, uh, one of the things that I'm having to learn more and more is self-management skills, um, emotional intelligence. And uh, I have to make sure I'm making points, not making enemies as I advocate for my son in a variety Mm -hmm. of spheres. And there's a pastor I go to a lot, Pastor Tom Shive, Gateway Church in Portland, uh, who's, I I say, Tom, I need some EQ time with you this morning. Help me out. And, you know, one of the things that Tom helped me think through is like, if I'm having a struggle with someone. So it's that matter of I need other people, um, you know, in the body of Christ and beyond to help me live into the very values I have. We can't do it alone. We're not individuals in isolation. So one of the things Tom said to me is, okay, you might see someone's weaknesses in your, in, and you can easily fixate on them and reduce them to those challenges. What about focusing on the things that you see in them that are good and where you see an area of lack, Paul, why don't you actually pray for them in that area? And it's like, I mean, it's so simple, Mm -hmm. but I can't get myself out of the brown paper bag that I, you know, often put on my, you know, it's just that I'm so fixated and I can reduce people. And Paul in Philippians 4 says, whatever is true, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. So as much as I know about these themes and I've been studying them for a very long time and writing on them in various contexts, I need other people to help remind me of them, both in terms of their lived experience, like your mom's teaching you, like my son's teaching me, like the caregivers who treat him with such care, and this pastor who I can call up. And I think if it weren't for Tom or other people, I would have just blown it by now with everything we're going through. So I just think we need to see that we're not islands unto ourselves, Mm -hmm. and we need one another to really help us take one another seriously. As C.S. Lewis says, we've never met a mere mortal. Uh, And so I need others to help me see that people are more than mere mortals, uh, as he says, in weight of glory. Mm. Imagine, if you will, for just a moment, and perhaps we don't have to imagine too much, what would would the world be like if we didn't um, see others as having value? I mean, what's at stake here if we fail to embrace what you're writing about here, not only in the 10 areas that you focus on, but in general, if we fail to recognize the value of one another and we see each other uh, by virtue of our utility and we um, accept this, embrace this notion of commodification of, of people, what's at stake? What do we lose? Well, I think we lose everything. I mean, you know, if we're talking about what is meaningful and what's valuable, I just think I become an empty carcass when, you know, if it's simply about... A career, if it's simply about um, my bank account, if it's simply about those things. And it's not to say they don't have importance, but they pale in comparison mm-hmm. to what really counts. Jesus said, people were not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for people. And so when we don't play out this with seeing the inherent significance of people, that people are made for more than things, when we start reducing one another to things, we actually start turning one another into demons of hell. And uh, Screw Tape Letters, another C.S. Lewis book, where he says, you know, our enemy, God, if I could just go into this for one second, you know, 
our, and we can come back to this, but our enemy God treats people as having value. Our master, the devil, consumes people and makes them an extension of himself. So I think we end up becoming demonic reductions of what God calls us to be as more than the angels, creating the image of God in Jesus. Mm. We're talking with Dr. Paul Metzger, his book, More Than Things. We've got news coming up at the top of the hour, but he's consented to stay with us for a few more minutes, so you do the same. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blend producing... Dave King Engineering, Pedro Bartez, producing and engineering in Seattle. I'm continuing a conversation I began in our first hour with Dr. Paul Lewis Metzger. He is the author most recently of More Than Things, a personalist ethics for a throwaway culture. We live in a culture of commodification, and he's urging us to consider the value that each one of us possesses, regardless of our socioeconomic status, our abilities, and all of the other things that we might uh, look to to um, evaluate uh, one another. Now, in, in the book, your personalist moral vision rests on the Christian ideals of faith, of hope, and love. How does this moral compass help us navigate through some of the more pressing issues that we face? Issues that I might add you address in the book. There are 10 uh, areas in which you specifically apply these these principles to. Mm-hmm. So, you know, First Corinthians 13, faith, hope, and love, uh, and the greatest of these is love. But um, I I frame it both in terms of what I'll call a vertical dimension and a horizontal dimension. Uh, The triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit uh, exist in eternal community, and that's the ground of faith. So it's it's the creedal formation that we have as Christians going back to the church fathers. Uh, and the and the scriptures that you know the triune God is the ground of faith. So it's not simply my faith in God; it's the divine subject who shapes and grounds mm-hmm. our faith. And so when we think of that, for example, I think of the people of Israel. And again, it's it's there with Exodus three where uh, God comes to Moses and says, "I'm sending you to Egypt to tell Pharaoh, let my people go." And, you know, that idea of the Lord, who are you? Tell me who who has sent uh, me. They're going to ask. And he says, tell them the Lord. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. I'm, And that's God's covenant name, the Lord. And we see this in the New Testament. If, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Paul's picking up on that. And it's it's not simply a title. It's a name. It's God's covenantal name. And so that that God, a named God, is the object of our faith. It's not pie in the sky. It's not... Uh, subjectivism, there's a a ground, a transcendent, what we'd call a transcendent ground, someone beyond us that is shaping our lives. And so that that ground of faith as God who is personal says to Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh says, who's the Lord that I should let Israel go? But, you know, they take that seriously. It's a named God and a named people. And as a friend of mine, Kendall Solon, has said, a nameless people and a nameless God can easily be commodified but a name God and a name people cannot be easily commodified. And so that theme of faith and the ground of our faith, but there's also an, uh, a horizontal dimension of faith that we look through a glass dimly, Paul says, then we shall look face to face. Mm. So there's a sense in which, you know, I, I have the scriptures that ground my faith. I have this belief in the triune God, but I still don't always see things accurately. So I, I better have humility. Hopefully I'm growing in humility that you know, I don't always see things with um, a crystal clear vision. So I need to be in dialogue with others as we try to understand how to live well. And then hope. 
uh, it was Martin Luther King Jr. in his uh, sermons toward the end of his life who said, you know, it looks grim with the, 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 the battle for the civil rights campaign. He says, the arc of the moral universe is long, though, and it bends toward justice. So we might think that all is for naught, but he says, while it seems dim, the moral arc or the arc of the moral universe is long, meaning that we can't always, but he had that hope, but it bends toward justice. So God is our hope, the Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Spirit, that we will not be disappointed in the end. God will wipe away every tear, and that keeps us from giving in. Maybe maybe we're not taking seriously and really important claims. Maybe people mock those claims. But the matter is, we're not ultimately doing it based on success, but faithfulness, knowing that God is our hope, and God will sustain us and strengthen us. Do not give up on the battle before us to seek to live, to honor God with all our hearts, so might strengthen our neighbors ourselves. And then also with hope, just this idea on the horizontal front that, again, there's always this sense that we live as creatures with a telos, with a direction, with an orientation. And that's not just Christians, but as Christians, our our hope is centered in Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. And so that has to shape my ethical vision. And then lastly, love. It's an embodied ethic. You know, Jesus says uh, everyone loves their friends. Everyone loves those who love them. But God calls to love our enemies. Be holy like God is holy means to love our enemies. That's the kind of love that God has to love our enemies um, and to pray for those who persecute us. Or as Luther says, and another from another vantage point, Martin Luther, the reformer, the, the gospel, and this is the heart of the gospel, uh, he says that it's it's not our attractiveness that creates God's love. It's God's love that creates our attractiveness. And I think that's the gospel. And that kind of love that loves the unlovely. And we're the unlovely through sin that God says, I'm going to make this ruined masterpiece to transform this ruined masterpiece of the fall to be a true masterpiece with all the glory. Because God doesn't see us as what we've made of ourselves. But God in his infinite love continues to love us with that undying affection. So that shapes um, what I'm trying to get at in the book as well. Mm. Again, we're talking about the book, More Than Things, A Personalist Ethics for a Throwaway Culture. The book is published by InterVarsity Press. And I have to confess, one of the frustrating things about doing what I do is there's never enough time to cover as much as I'd like, and certainly to give our listeners a taste of all that's in your book. It's it's amazing. Uh, I do want to ask you just very quickly, how can we pray for your son? He's a mm-hmm. husband, he's a father, he's had the traumatic brain injury. How can we pray for your son and your family that care for him? Thank you, Georgine, and thank you uh, for the listeners to pray for Christopher and his wife's name is Kian and their daughter's Jayla. Well, we're praying for his consciousness to be restored as a palliative care specialist from OHSU has shared with us. Uh, the probabilities are slim, but the possibilities are real for meaningful recovery. And this is 2.5 years in, but we're praying for consciousness, full consciousness, somehow by God's grace to return. We're praying for his wife and daughter to be sustained. And we've been Mm -hmm. so grateful for the community of supporting us. And um, I write about him all the time, you know, for Christopher Metzger as his dad. And uh, just thank you for your prayers. And uh, we're we're thankful for the caregivers and all the people who care. Well, we'll continue to pray for, uh, for him you. and for your family. Dr. Metzger, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so us. much, Georgine. Once again, More Than Things, published by InterVarsity Press. Up next, we're going to talk with Reverend Dean Nelson. He's the chair of the Douglas uh, Leadership Institute. We're going to talk about uh, Governor Gavin Newsom's Senate appointment to replace Senator Dianne Feinstein, who passed away last week.
We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Portland-only segments of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, here in Oregon, the 35-day legislature, the legislative session is halfway over. The momentum is uh, building on key issues that legislative leaders said that they would be their focus, housing, homelessness, and Oregon's drug crisis, exacerbated by, well, a law that we passed ourselves. Well, I didn't, but some of you did. Well, lawmakers have until the 10th of March to pass policy bills and budget adjustments. Hearings on major legislation, including rolling back the state's drug decriminalization law and bolstering housing production, are expected this week. In the Oregon Senate last week, they passed legislation criminalizing drug use on public transportation. The bill now awaits a vote from the House. And on Friday, an amendment outlining a new agreement between Republicans and Democrats on penalties for drug possession was made public. Well, Speaker um, Dan Rayfield told reporters on Thursday that he expected bills around housing and homelessness to be moved out of the Ways and Means Committee sometime this week, voted out of the committee and onto the Senate floor before that March 10th deadline. Senate Bill 1537 is Governor Tina Kotek's priority housing bill, which she announced ahead of the legislative session. But she's made some compromises. The proposal would create a housing accountability and production office to support the production of new housing and allow for one-time expansion of cities' urban growth boundaries. Hundreds submitted testimony on the bill earlier this month. Lawmakers moved the bill out of committee, but not without amending a number of uh, the number of acres that cities could add to the growth boundaries and cutting Kotex's five hundred million dollar budget request to three hundred and fifty million. The proposal sent to Ways and Means would allow cities with more than twenty five hundred, rather twenty five thousand people, to bring up to one hundred acres into their urban growth boundaries if thirty percent of the development would go toward affordable housing and other requirements are met. Cities with populations under 25,000 will be able to bring up to 50 acres into their urban growth boundaries. Well, the governor, through her spokesperson, said that she had anticipated amendments to the bill, but hoped for deeper investments toward moderate income financing and infrastructure programs. She hopes to see at least $200 million more than the legislature proposed dedicated to the bill. Again, her spokesperson, Elizabeth Shepard, press secretary, said in an email, well, the governor set a goal of building 36,000 housing units a year for the next 10 years to overcome Oregon's housing crisis. Well, action stalled in the last two weeks on proposals to bring back penalties for drug possession as Democrats and Republicans negotiated. Lawmakers held a public hearing on the 7th of this month on House Bill 400, or rather 4002, The proposal supported by Democrats leading the Joint Committee on Addiction and Community Safety Response and Republicans' proposal. House Bill 4036, which would make changes to a key aspect of Measure 110, which voters passed three years ago, sadly. Well, lawmakers now plan to host an additional public hearing this week on the 137-page amendment published Friday afternoon. Well, the now revised bill that would penalize drug possession as an entirely new misdemeanor with penalties of up to 180. 80 days if diversion and deflection options fail. The bill says law enforcement agencies in this state are encouraged to, in lieu of the citation or arrest, or after citation or arrest, but before referral to the district attorney, refer a person to a deflection program. District attorneys are encouraged to divert for assessment, treatment, and other services instead of conviction, end quote. Well, under the amendment, the Oregon Criminal Justice Commission would be required to establish a statewide system to track data around deflection program outcomes. 
Representative Jason Krupp, a Democrat from Bend, said lawmakers started the session with two overreaching questions regarding the state's worsening addiction crisis. What are the immediate actions legislators can take to build out the state's treatment infrastructure? And how do lawmakers continue with the long-term plan for the treatment infrastructure needed to make sure those in crisis get help? No one person has all the answers, and that's why we tried to engage as many people as possible. And I feel good about the package that we're putting together. Uh, he said in a quote, well, the amended proposal maintains investments in treatment while also giving law enforcement the tools they need. He said diversion would still be possible in counties that opt in. Well, as of Friday, 10 to 14 counties uh, said that they would partner with the state to create deflection programs in their communities. The programs are meant to offer those stopped for possession the opportunity to avoid the criminal process altogether and instead connect with treatment. Well, after successful completion of a deflection program, a law enforcement agency and district attorney would be required to seal all records within 60 days of receiving verification of completion. Records would be expunged after two years from the date of a citation without any other prosecutorial uh, action. The successful completion of probation leading to the dismissal of charges also would require expungement 90 days after the dismissal. Records of individuals convicted of unlawful possession would be sealed three years after conviction. We're trying to create as many pathways and as many off-ramps toward treatment, Krupp said. Other aspects of the bill remain unchanged, including extending welfare holds from 48 to 72 hours, conducting a study specifically targeting barriers to youth's access to opioid use disorder treatment, and penalizing those dealing drugs within 500 feet of a treatment facility, shelter, or public park. Organizations who oppose the earlier version of the bill again expressed frustration and opposition to the amended version when it was released. The ACLU of Oregon penned a letter to Crop Senator uh, Kate Lieber, the Democrat from Portland and Kotek, the governor and other leaders, saying changes to House Bill 4002 were functionally similar to the regressive policies pushed by the group's Fix and Improve Ballot Measure 110. They also claimed stakeholders, including lawyers and civil rights advocates, were shut out of the conversations on House Bill 4002. Oregon's legislative leadership is digging a deep, unconscionable, and costly trench of human suffering by recriminalizing Oregonians experiencing drug addiction, the executive director of the ACLU of Oregon said in a statement. However, what we've done in the past, even though this short version, three years, has not worked. House Republican leader, Representative uh, Jeff uh, Helfrich, a uh, Republican out of Hood River, said House Republicans have stood strong alongside law enforcement and district attorneys to resolve the Measure 110 crisis and would be reviewing revisions to ensure their goals were being met. A part of that solution absolutely must include recriminalizing drugs, Helfrich said. Representative Kevin Mannix from Salem, he also has proposed a separate amendment to the bill, which similarly creates a new drug misdemeanor. In a statement outlining his own 145-page proposal, Mannix said his plan takes necessary steps to clean up our streets and get addicts help. Oregon is in crisis because of a failure of Measure 110. We need to put partisanship Aside and focus on an Oregon solution, one based in policy, not politics, Mannix went on to say. And by the way, a public hearing was scheduled for today at five. Hopefully we'll have some information about that hearing tomorrow. Well, the Voice of America provided some details about U.S. fighter jets tracking a balloon traveling at high altitudes over western United States. 
but officials said there is no danger to anyone either on the ground or in the air. Well, the North American Aerospace Defense Command, also known as NORAD, they described the object as a small balloon being pushed by the wind at an altitude of between 43,000 and 45,000 feet. Well, as of Saturday at 8.30 a.m., it was last reported to be over Utah. As of Saturday, 10.30 p.m., the New York Post reported it was a hobbyist balloon and had left the U.S. airspace. It was suggested by Oregon Watchdog that Oregonians be alert, look up, and take photos. Well, CBS sees confidential files of a fired reporter who'd been pursuing the Hunter Biden laptop story in an unprecedented move. And a judge denied uh, Trump's request to delay enforcement of the $355 million fraud case penalties. AT&T says massive cell outage was caused by a technical error, not a cyber attack. But pharmacies nationwide reported outages in the wake of a cyber attack. And Chicago residents spoke out against migrants welcomed by the city, saying they are junking up our city. That's a quote. Yale will now require standardized test scores for admissions. And uh, MS Society's U-turn is uh, issuing and issuing a a, a groveling apology to a fired 90-year-old volunteer whom it forced to step down after she asked what pronouns meant. Well, she knows what pronouns mean, but she means what do they mean now? Well, Odysseus has become the first American leader to reach the moon, or I should say lander to reach the moon in 52 years. Well, a Venezuelan illegal has been arrested for the murder of a 20-year-old Georgia nursing student. Lakin Riley was like Molly Tibbetts before her, someone's daughter. Tibbetts, a 20-year-old to University of Iowa student, was out for a jog on July 18, 2018, when she was stabbed to death by a 26-year-old immigrant who was in the country illegally, who then dumped her body in a remote Iowa cornfield. At this weekend, we learned that the murderer of the 22-year-old Riley, an Augusta University nursing student who was also out for a jog, was another 26-year-old in the country illegally. This one, a Venezuelan who crossed into the U.S. at El Paso and was released due to a lack of detention space, then made his way to New York City, where last year a man matching his description was arrested for endangering a five-year-old child. So he couldn't have, uh, he could have been locked up or at least deported, but not in a sanctuary city like New York and not in Joe Biden's open border America. Lakin was an amazing daughter, sister, friend, and overall person in general, her family said in a statement. Her love for the Lord was exemplified in every aspect of her life. She will be missed every day, but we promise to honor her life moving forward in a very big way, end quote. Meanwhile, Governor uh, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp, he published a letter asking why Joe Biden is standing in the way of those who would protect our children against his malfeasance. As our Mark Alexander noted, the Biden administration was deliberately prohibited, has deliberately prohibited any national database of violent crimes committed by those in the country illegally that he has invited into the country, adding every violent crime committed by Biden's illegal pawns needs to be hung around his neck. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, New York's Attorney General got her pound of flesh from the NRA, but the NRA helped. On Friday, a New York jury in a civil corruption lawsuit brought against former National Rifle Association CEO Wayne LaPierre and the nation's leading Second Amendment advocacy organization found them liable. Back in 2020, New York Attorney General Letitia James vowed to take down the NRA 
After a three-year investigation, she has not completely taken out the NRA, but she has significantly damaged the organization. Of course, there was some damage the organization did itself. Of course, it's not as if uh, LaPierre, who resigned from the NRA last month after having steered the organization since 1991, is without controversy. Indeed, while James' motives for targeting the NRA were undeniably political, the jury's decisions appear to be valid claims raised by two former high-profile NRA members, former NRA President Oliver North and board member Alan West, both of whom sounded alarms over financial mismanagement by LaPierre. Well, the jury found that LaPierre cost the NRA $5.4 million with money spent on vacations, private jets, an expensive wardrobe, and personal landscaping around his home. Well, a massive cyber attack hit a U.S. healthcare system. Last week, the nation's largest healthcare system suddenly went dark. Change Healthcare which is part of the United Healthcare System and accounts for roughly a third of America's healthcare, was hit by an unprecedented cyber attack by a yet-to-be-named nation-state. The attack impacted the ability of pharmacies to receive prescriptions as Change Healthcare System went offline. Pharmacies had to fill prescriptions manually. The disruption in service lasted a day, but few details have been revealed as to the nature of the attack or if there was any wider impact, such as patient information being compromised. Stay tuned. The cellular outage um, harbinger, or is it? Last Thursday, tens of thousands of AT&T customers and a few thousand customers of other major cell phone companies were impacted by one of the largest cellular outages the U.S. has experienced to date. And while the initial fear was that the outage was a result of a cyber attack, AT&T dispelled that concern, blaming it on the application and execution of an incorrect process used as we were expanding our network, not a cyber attack, end quote. Roughly 12 hours after the initial outages began, AT&T noted that service had been fully restored to all its customers. However, what the cellular outage may have served to uh, reveal is just how vulnerable America's cellular system is. As Florida Senator Marco Rubio observed, I don't know the cause of the AT&T outage, but I do know it will be 100 times worse when China launches a cyber attack on America on the eve of a Taiwan invasion. And it won't be just cell service they hit. It will be your power, your water and your bank. A harbinger? We'll leave that an open question. Heidi Pribe, I think it's Pribyla, who is billed as a national investigative correspondent for the left media outfit Politico is a recent in a recent interview with MSNBC sought to ring the alarm bells for the leftist uh, the left's latest boogeyman of Christian nationalism. Now, when attempting to explain why these Christian nationalists are so dangerous and supposedly different from other Christians, she said that they hold to the belief that, and I'm quoting, our rights as Americans, as all human beings, don't come from any earthly authority. They don't come from Congress. They don't come from the Supreme Court. They come from God, end quote. Uh, well, yeah. Well, Pribyla might want to take a gander at the document that laid the primary foundational principle and justification for the very existence of this great nation, the Declaration of in- Independence. Pribyla further invoked natural law, which she clearly misunderstands as justification for claiming that Christians who dare to hold the biblical principles to inform their moral understanding of the world and therefore what they hold to politically as merely the rule of men 
Natural law is the recognition that God, the creator, has written the moral law for all humanity onto everyone's conscience, written in their hearts, if you will. While corrupted by sin, everyone still has an innate sense of right and wrong, good and evil. The founding fathers recognized this reality, hence their appeal to inalienable rights from the creator and not from mortal man. I would suggest that Miss Prybyla check out, first of all, the Declaration of Independence and then to gain a better understanding of what natural law actually is and what God has to say about it. Well, former President Trump is appealing to the ruling in the massive New York civil fraud case. We'll see what happens there. And President Biden claims to be champion of blue collar workers, but they're donating more to Trump. Well, then Vice President Biden uh, told a Russian oligarch and ex-Moscow mayor to be good to my boy during a phone call. Not sure what that means, but the New York Post reported it. Ukraine is desperate for supplies as Russia advances on the invasion's two-year anniversary. And Chuck Schumer led a Democrat delegation to Ukraine amid the standoff over military aid. Voters, two to one, want America fixed before funding Ukraine's defense. Well, an Air Force member died after setting himself on fire at the Israeli embassy in Washington, D.C., yelling, Free Palestine. He made his point, but I'm not sure it was one that will gain much attention or make uh, policy changes. The Palestinian prime minister has resigned amid calls to reform the Palestinian authority and a small high altitude balloon of unknown origin flew over the Western U S posing no threat to national security. We're told well, state universities are teaching students to blow up oil pipelines. Mom and dad, you might want to make note by the way, you can read more on that in the daily wire. There are now more migrants in the U S illegally than the populations of 36 states. And we're not just talking about migrants, immigrants who make up a significant portion of our population. We're talking about those in the country illegally under the new rules or the lack of rules. Make up more of the population of 36 U.S. states. Something to think about. Well, on this day in history, 1616, astronomer Galileo Galilei, he meets with a Roman Inquisition official, Cardinal Robert uh, Belmarine, uh, who orders him to abandon the heretical concept of heliocentrism, which holds that the earth revolves around the sun instead of the other way around. 1815, Napoleon Bonaparte, he escapes from exile on the island of Elba and heads back to France in a bid to regain power. 1829, Levi Strauss, founder of Levi Strauss and Company, which would make the first blue jeans, is born in Buttenheim, Bavaria, Germany. I'm wearing blue jeans today in his honor. 1904, the United States and Panama proclaim a treaty under which the U.S. agrees to undertake efforts to build a ship canal across the Panama Isthmus. 1917, President Woodrow Wilson signs a congressional act establishing Mount McKinley National Park, now known as Denali National Park, in the Alaska Territory. 1919, President Woodrow Wilson signs a congressional act establishing Grand Canyon National Park in Arizona. 1929, just 10 years later, President Calvin Coolidge signs a measure establishing Grand Teton National Park in Wyoming. 1952, Prime Minister Winston Churchill announces that Britain has developed its own atomic bomb. 1984, the last U.S. Marines deploy in Beirut as part of an international peacekeeping force withdraw uh, from the Lebanese capital. 
1987, the Tower Commission, which probed the Iran-Contra affair, issues a report rebuking President Ronald Reagan for failing to control his national security staff. 1993, a truck bomb built by Islamic extremists explodes in the parking garage of the North Tower of New York's World Trade Center, killing six people and injuring more than a thousand others. The bomb fails to topple the North Tower into South Tower, as the terrorists hope. Both structures would be destroyed in the 9-11 attack eight years later. 1994, a jury in San Antonio acquits 11 followers of David Koresh of murder, rejecting claims they ambushed federal agents. However, five were convicted of voluntary manslaughter. 1998, a jury in Amarillo, Texas, rejects an $11 million lawsuit brought by Texas cattlemen who blame Oprah Winfrey's talk show for a price dip following a food safety segment that included a discussion about mad cow disease. 2009 General Motors Corporation, they post a $9.6 billion loss for the fourth quarter of 2008. 2009 also, the Pentagon, reversing an 18-year-old policy, says it would allow some media coverage of returning war dead with family approval. And finally, on this day in history, 2014, President Barack Obama, speaking in St. Paul, Minnesota, said he would ask Congress for $300 billion to update aging roads and railways. Apparently the roads in my town weren't on that list. Well, we are out of time. I do want to thank James Blend for producing, Dave King for engineering here in Portland, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.